Good morning. It's quite a privilege to be able to bring the word of the Lord, and I just get so excited. Clark asked me, how'd you sleep? And I told him, not very well. And he said, are you nervous? I said, no, I'm so excited. I've done public speaking before, but man, when you get to bring the word of the Lord, there is nothing better. We're going to be looking at Joel 2, and the main verses we're going to look at today are 12 through 17, if you want to open your Bibles. And I titled this sermon, Rend Your Heart. And this morning we're going to take a look at a story that describes some intense turmoil. And it's a wake-up call, and it's the picture of complete restoration. So we'll be looking at the book of Joel, and it's a brief book. It is pungent with judgment, but it's balanced really well with extreme forgiveness. When you look at this tiny little book, it contains three chapters. And it really has three main ideas. They're not divided by the chapters themselves, but more by the subject matter. And the first one is the description of God's judgment and the punishment on the people. The second one is Joel's plea for the people for repentance and for worship. And the third one is God's grace just pouring in, but then also a promise of an ultimate judgment and protection. Do you see the balance? The author is the prophet Joel, and he's the son of Pethuel, and the name Joel means Jehovah is God. Lord is God. The Lord is God. Now, if you know the history of these people, we're talking about the Israelites, that God would save, then they'd sin. They'd call out, God would save, then they'd sin. And they'd call out, and God would save. How many times can I say it? But it's a repeat going on. Joel's name means that there is one God. Jehovah is God. He's declaring the one true God in his name. We've heard him referred to as the anonymous prophet because he kind of slides in, he writes the book of Joel, he tells the story as if the voice of God, and then he turns and he's gone. It's a flash. But when he's speaking, he's standing in an area of desolation. And again, his voice is as if he is the voice of God. The desolation he was standing in was severe. That would kind of be like us standing in the middle of Hiroshima and looking around. There was devastation everywhere. Can you imagine standing in that aftermath? Can you imagine explaining to your children that this happened generations ago, but we're still paying the price. And we still haven't quite learned. There are areas here that we could witness that same devastation after hurricanes and such. There are natural disasters. Look at Mount St. Helens, right? We all think it's beautiful and it's majestic, but it's powerful and it's desolate. These people that he was speaking to had been through intense suffering. All life had been sucked away from this group of people. All life had been sucked away from this land, and the people had lost their way. 
again. When you're looking at this story, I want to bring it in on a more personal level. And I want to ask you, have you ever been through a period of intense suffering? Have you ever found yourself in a predicament where you were so overwhelmed with grief or sadness or despair? One of the best ways for us to have the Bible come alive is for us to put those shoes on, those shoes of these people. So as we're reading this scripture, let's try on their shoes. The picture first is Joel. He starts with a description of a plague of locusts. I've seen locusts on the Discovery Channel. How about you? Right? When I lived in the South, there were some really big, to me, the specific Northwest girl, bugs. Big bugs. Right? June bugs all over my screen door, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to go through it. They don't hurt you, and they actually kind of make a cool song. But they were big to me, and they were gross. The road that I took from the little town I lived in, in Mountain View, Arkansas, in the middle of the Ozark Mountains, and I would go down the hill, down through the holler, and back up the road to my red dirt road, and there was a patch there. Believe it or not, I didn't know that tarantulas migrate, but they do. And there would be a path a certain time of year that would just be black. And you'd just keep driving. But it grossed me out so bad, and I was so fearful of those bugs that did I really want to get out of my car when I got home because what if they were in the undercarriage or something, right? Gross. But I've never seen a storm of locusts. The tarantulas and the June bugs or anything that any of us have experienced have never wiped out our land. We haven't had to live through that before. Remember, this was life-draining. And this was devastation that lasted for generations. Can you imagine? Exodus 10. Remember Moses? He goes to Pharaoh. Remember the plagues? Let my people go. Pharaoh was hard-headed, hard-hearted, it took a lot to get that guy to turn and to release the Israelites from slavery. Moses goes back in there and he's playing with him because he knows the next plague is the locusts. If you want to turn with me to Exodus 10, it's in verses 3 through 6. Let's get a little bit of a picture. Let's put on those shoes and see what these people were facing it says, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Hebrew, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts, here they come, into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your field. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your fathers nor your forefathers have ever seen from the day they settled in this land till now. Then Moses turned and he left Pharaoh. 
Now let's take a look back at Joel. In this text, you're going to see that the turmoil for these people begins in about 1-4. And he mentions the invasion of a locust army, which devastated the crops. In studying for this sermon, I learned that not everyone subscribes to the locusts as being actual locusts, that some think that this is a metaphor for an actual invasion from a devastating human army. No matter whether they were real locusts or they were a hostile army, Joel is responding to a historical crisis. There's another thing that the Bible scholars aren't really settled on in this text. And this is where it's fun. Reading the living word is fun because you can delve into it and find out some of these really cool things. It says that there's a little bit of a controversy over the date of this writing. Because of the placement where this is in our Bible, in the canon, it's between Hosea and Amos, that some of the historians think that this might be a post-Babylonian exile, and others think it's pre-Babylonian exile. Does it really matter to us to get the theological truth out of this scripture, whether it's real locusts, an active army coming, whether it's pre or whether it's post? I would like to propose that it doesn't matter because the theology in here is strong. The theology here is true. God will judge. We need to repent. And we need to return. And he will forgive. The prophet, if you look from chapter 1 clear through to 2.17, he's describing the present state crisis as God's judgment on the people. And he's calling the people to repent. There's other prophets in this area of the Bible, Amos, Micah, Isaiah, that will name specific sin when they're calling the people to repentance. But notice in the book of Joel, he doesn't name a specific sin. He doesn't call out a person. He doesn't call out a cast of people. His focus is more on the repentance, the crying and the worship, the turn towards God in worship. Perhaps it's because this was bad. They didn't have time to start saying, well, you did this, and you did this, and you did this. They had heard so much of that, hadn't they, by this point? He calls the people to a worship service of repentance, and I'd actually like to read together that whole little group, Joel 2, 12 through 17, and I'd like to hear the prophet's heart here. So please stand in honor of the reading of the Lord's word. Even now declares the Lord, and I'm starting at 12, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garment. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and he's compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. 
declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast, leave the bridegroom, leave his room, or let the bridegroom leave his room, and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? You may be seated. Nowhere in there does he name a specific sin. Nowhere in there did you hear him name a specific group or person. Rather, Joel is calling the people to turn towards God in repentance and worship. Worship. To show reverence and adoration for, to honor, to glorify, and to exalt. To worship. But you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. Who am I to worship? Verse 12 says, Even now return to me. Even now. Listen here. God is saying you can't mess up too much. You can't be too far gone. I don't care what you have done. You can't be so bad that he doesn't want you to return. He longs for your return. God has not written you off. If you look back at verse 11, God owns up to the fact that this was his army that was sent. And we're like, wait a minute. God's mean. God's not mean. Have you ever punished your children? We do it because we love them. We want to bring them back into obedience. We want to bring them back into that safe harbor. So God says, it was me. Turn. He doesn't give up on us. When you look back at the church histories, most of these towns, if they have a foundational block on the corner of their church, it's happened at a time of crisis that there's growth. God uses crisis. People turn to God in crisis because sometimes we have nothing else left. So we finally turn. He uses those crises to get our attention. But it's out of love. We need to not just turn in crisis, but we need to return and we need to stay in fellowship with him. When I was doing the research, it just blew me away when I came across the word return, the original Greek, epistrophe. And I'm kind of a word nerd. So I started parsing this scripture, which means to dissect it, take it apart, look at the words. So for those of you that are word nerds like me, I'll share with you what I found out about epistrophe. It's an imperative which makes return a command. It's not just a gentle suggestion, it's a command. 
And the mood here was the command for someone to perform the action of that verb and return. It's not an option. It's required. Someone has to return. And then it's used masculine plural. Well, we know back in the biblical days that women and children really were the possession of the man, right? They didn't really have much value. So this was addressing every man. It was plural, every man, which means then it echoes down to everything that they own, everything that's encompassed underneath that head. Return meant everybody, everybody must return. Nobody's left behind. Everybody's included in the way this is used in Scripture. And when I was sitting there working on this, my head, I know it's a funny place to be, but I'm going to take you there, I started thinking about Radio City Music Hall and the Rockettes. (laughs) And that kick line. And I started thinking about how they needed to be synchronized. They had to be together. Do you know that that group has lasted for 86 years? Right? Why? Because they turn together every time. If they didn't, they wouldn't have that longevity. This is a no man left behind command from Joel. This is a no man left behind command for us. We need to be out there making these disciples so they can jump on our line and we can turn. No man left behind. Return. Epistrophe. He says that we must return with all of our heart. Every bit of it, we need to be totally committed, all in, withholding nothing, fully surrendering. And then he says, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Fasting is a basic, or food is your basic need, right? So fasting is impinging on that basic need. We need our desire to seek God to be over even the want of our basic needs. Then he goes on to list weeping. It's okay to cry. This was a terrible crisis for these people, and they were encouraged to cry out. Cry. Did you know that you have three types of tears? You do. You have what's known as reflex tears, and that's if you get something in your eye and you've got to work it out. Then you have continuous tears that lubricate your eye and they protect them from infection. But the third set of tears here that he's talking about in the text is emotional tears. God is so good. He programmed you with three types of tears. The third one, the most intense that show emotion, have health benefits. When a scientist examines a tear, an emotional tear, they see contained in that tear stress hormones. And they see in that tear toxins. That means you get relief. Isn't that cool? Cry. Crying also releases endorphins. That's our feel-good chemical. Isn't he amazing? 
And when we cry out, God listens to our screams, and he listens to our cries of pain in these difficult seasons. Remember back in Exodus 2, the Israelites, they were groaning in their slavery, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of slavery went to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. That's a good God. In Psalms 34, 17, the psalmist declares with confidence that God listens. This is what that verse says. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all of their troubles. You can trust God's compassion. You can't be too bad. You can run into his arms. And it's okay for you to cry about it. Ecclesiastics 3, 1 through 4 reminds us that we will all experience these seasons. Nobody is exempt. Not even in here. We're not. We have seasons Ecclesiastes says, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. It's, there's a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, but then a time to dance. Sometimes, as Christians, we might feel like we're not supposed to experience anger or frustration or depression or loneliness or any of those. We think that we are failing in our walk if we feel these things and if we express these things. Sometimes we paint this picture within ourselves that we should always feel the joy of the Lord. But we will have our seasons. Don't get caught up in that Sunday smile or fake it till you make it. We believe sometimes that being transparent might just ruin our witness. Can I tell you that authenticity is the best witness? Aren't you weary of the salesman mentality? Can we just be real? How can we grow if we can't be our authentic self? Check in with your heart. Do you feel free to experience all of your emotions before God? Can you cry out? Can you be real? Can you be transparent? Can you be authentic in front of the Savior? Can you get to a place of vulnerability in your personal worship? Can you return to God with every part of your heart? Verse 13, 2.13 of Joel says, Rend your heart and not your garment, He's saying, do the work of your heart. Do the hard work. Do the painful work. Not the superficial exterior. But do that true, heart-ripping repentance. 
Rend means to tear apart, to separate it, to tear into and to expose. And not your garments. In the Old Testament, this was a tradition to show extreme emotion. They would tear their garments. And it would be a sign that they were going through something awful. Mourning something awful. Or they would wear the sackcloth that was made out of goat hair, traditionally, to sit there and irritate at the skin and to remind them of their suffering. Remember 2 Samuel 1, 11 and 12. It says, Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them, and so also did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for all the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Mourned, cried out, fasted. Remember the story of Joseph being sold into slavery. Genesis 37 tells us that the brother Reuben had a plan in the back of his head. He really wanted to go back to that pit and he wanted to find that brother and he wanted to be able to rescue him and save him from the lot that the other brothers were casting on him. And when he went back to the pit, what happened? Joseph wasn't there. He showed extreme emotion and he ripped his garment. Remember in Ezra 9.5, he was appalled by the exile's unfaithfulness. And 9.5 tells us, But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn. I fell on my knees and I stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. Their robes were one of their most prized possessions. Tearing that robe was a reminder of a painful, sorrowful event. When you look around, we don't see each other in robes. We don't see each other in robes that have been torn and then mended. But as I was studying this, I thought, perhaps if we all would go back to that tradition, we'd be able to support each other better. Maybe if we actually wore that physical sign that I'm dying inside, we would come and we would wrap ourselves around each other better. He's challenging us to tear into and expose and repent of our own heart conditions. We're supposed to do this internal work of purification. So stop putting on the Sunday smile if you're dying inside. Stop hiding behind a perfect, untorn garment if your heart is hurting. Do the work and recruit help. When we face troubles, we can't help but we soul search. But watch here in Joel how this story changes. Verse 13, for he is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. 
Now, this is the character of God that's being described. And when we think about the Old Testament, a lot of times we think about this judgment, hellfire, and damnation kind of God, don't we? But there are several places through the Old Testament where these Old Testament characters remind us that our God of the New Testament is the same God in the Old. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says, As he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's a good God. Numbers 44, 18. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Nehemiah 9.17, But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate. There are those words again. Slow to anger and abounding in love. Do you see the consistency in his character here? 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9, If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. You can't do too much. You can't be too bad. He will not turn his face. I love Jonah. He's actually quite a character, isn't he? Remember in Jonah 4, 1 through 2, he was praying and kind of crying out to God. He was actually mad that God's so compassionate. It says, but Jonah was greatly displeased and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You're slow to anger and you abound in love. And you're a God who relents from sending calamity. He was mad that the character was consistent. I praise him that his character is consistent. Obviously, when we look at all those people in the Old Testament, they've got it. They know the character. They know about compassion. And they know about grace. And we today still can, can trust this, can trust this character. Look at verse 14. It says, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Do you know? Whether we know the outcome or not, it's not important. It's not under our control. God is in control. We need to be returning no matter what the outcome will be. It's not our business. We need to walk in obedience to the command of the prophet. Epistrophe. Epistrophe. Return. Don't worry about the details. Just return. His ways are higher. We don't have to know why or how it's going to be. His ways are higher. Have you experienced that? I have. My best 
imagined outcome. Sometimes he just outdoes me just because he can, and he probably giggles about it. We need to be returning together. Do you see this? It's a command. It's not an option. Did you get it? We must, we must, we must, we must return with our whole hearts. We must do this inner work, and we must tear out our hearts so that God can mend them how he wants to mend them. It's not our business to wait around until we get a better idea of what God's going to do. Who knows? Can I tell you who knows? God knows. So return and worship. Verse 14 goes on and it says, He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. A blessing would be nothing short of a miracle to these people. Remember where they're standing? Can you put those shoes on again and imagine where we were when we started this morning? Land that had been sucked dry, no life left in it. He may turn and have pity and leave a blessing. A miracle. Because they had nothing. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 3, it says the land was described beforehand like the Garden of Eden. And now after the fires, it's a desert waste. Do you see the contrast? This is serious stuff. Change needs to be happening for these people. So verse 15, chapter 2, blow the trumpets in Zion. There is no time to waste here. This is the 11th hour alarm Joel's talking about. Wake up! any of you are sleeping, I'm sorry if I just scared you. <laughs> He's telling the people to wake up. This is urgent. Declare a holy fast. Put your basic needs aside. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate. Consecrate means to make or declare with a holy purpose. That means everybody on that same page. Consecrate that assembly. Everyone united. Bring together the elders and gather the children, those nursing, nursing at the breast. Everybody's included in this. Everybody has value. God values every soul here. The man, the woman, the child, even the infant. Everybody's named out because we're included in this kick line. The text says in 17, let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. What if we said, let the pastors, the church board members, the staff, the Sunday school teachers, the youth leaders, all the church congregants who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar? Do we want it that bad? And let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? Some may be sitting in here today that are experiencing presently tragedy and loss. We go through some of these horrific times, right? Some others of us may have already come out of it. But whether it's individually or it's collectively, 
As the church of the Lord, we need to stick together. We are called to band together. We are called to return together. Epistrophe. Where is their God? There's no doubt in my mind as to the location of our one true God. And he solves the separation once and for all. There is no doubt in my mind that God will listen to our cry. Remember the character of God, the compassion and the grace. He made the ultimate sacrifice in his son to communicate to us the desire that he has to be in relationship with us. This isn't just a story of the Old Testament. This is a calling to us. This is a calling to us to tear open our hearts and to do the hard work and stop wearing the pretty clothes and the Sunday smile and be authentic with each other and with God. This is the calling to let Christ get so real to you that he can do new things and he can mend your garment in a way you never thought possible. God tore a cloth one time. It wasn't just a robe. This cloth was 60 feet high. And it was three inches thick. This cloth was the image of separation between God and these sinful people. We benefit today from everything these people have walked through. We benefit today by this cloth being torn. Epistrophe. Watch this. In the ancient Jewish temple, a large stone blocked access to the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt. It was a constant reminder that sin separated us from God. Nobody was allowed in except for the high priest, and then only once again.
Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that these stories of old Lord turn into your living word inside our hearts. And Lord, I just ask you to look in my heart. Help me to see where I need to tear. Help me to see where I need to purify. Help me to see where I'm hanging on to something with a Sunday face. Lord Jesus, help us to be authentic to each other and especially to you. Help us to be ready to sacrifice our basic needs because our yearning for you is stronger. Help us to return to you and to turn to you as a group, as a church body, as a church people, loving each other, uniting with each other, having a common goal, Lord Jesus, and that is to pursue and advance your kingdom. Help us to be infected and renewed with the no man left behind, Lord, and that we get out there and we disciple to people who are lost so we can bring them into that line and they can return with us. What a glorious day that will be. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you for that ultimate fabric being torn, that you have finished it, Lord Jesus. What a gift. What a gift that we don't have to sit in the guilt or the shame, that we can just tear our heart and repent to you and come to you, and we know because of Jesus that we are forgiven. And help us to live in that boldness. We've got work to do. Help us to now take off the shoes of those Israelites, Lord, and put on the shoes of the redeemed. Put on the shoes of the forgiven. Put on the shoes of the love. And make this world a better place. Be with us as we go. Keep reminding us. I beg that you keep doing the work in my heart. In your precious and most powerful name. Amen.